Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And today we're here with Judge Glenn Norton. Judge, welcome back. On a previous episode, we talked about uh, your work as a mediator. And today we're going to talk about appellate practice. It's good to be back. Thank you. Could you give us a little bit of a thumbnail about not only your work as an appellate judge, but a few other things that you've been doing in your career that folks might find interesting? Grew up in North Missouri and uh, after college went to law school at the University of Missouri Columbia and practiced law in Northeast Missouri for about 10 years. I was a trial judge then for six, got elected twice up there. And then after a couple of years in Jefferson City as legal counsel for Governor Bob Holden, he appointed me to the Court of Appeals in 2002, and I served there until 2015, at which time I retired, quote-unquote, and uh, started a mediation practice and uh, that I've been doing now for five years. So that's the quick summary of uh, a lot of different jobs in different places that I've done. There's various kinds of personalities that come up and argue in front of the judges. Are there some that are hurting their legal case by virtue of their personality or their way of presenting, or is it easy enough for an appellate judge to look past those distracting things and always get to the, the, the matter at hand. I think looking past the distracting things is, is easy if that's really all it is. A lawyer who is prepared but isn't the most eloquent can still win the day every time if they've got the right case and they've got the right supporting case law and they make a good argument. Maybe their tone of their voice is not as pleasing. Those things are not going to be a problem. The things that you're not going to get around in terms of lawyers who are doing things differently or not arguing correctly are lawyers who will get up there and try to argue with the, the appellate judges. Or I've had lawyers try to talk over me while I'm trying to ask them a question and they're trying to interrupt and, and talk while I'm talking. That never goes well. And I've seen them do it. I knew of one appellate judge who got up and walked off the bench during an oral argument because the lawyer was, was refused to stop talking and listen to the questions that were being asked. And there's no future in that. You can't do it. And so that idea. The other thing lawyers do from time to time, and I've stopped lawyers during oral argument, and I've said, counselor, stop. You're saying disparaging things that are personal about the trial judge who ruled against you. Are you unaware that we all know each other and that we're all friends? Because you're not helping your case. But they'll do it without realizing it. So I don't think smart, experienced lawyers do those sorts of things, because I think they know better. What I'm hearing you say is that just go up and be yourself, and the court will, will see through it. I think that's absolutely right. I think those folks who are very eloquent and they're good speakers but are also prepared and know the case and, and, and are strong on the law are always going to be received pleasantly by the court, but they're not going to win just because they can give a good speech. That's just not what's going to happen at the Court of Appeals. Several decades ago, I think briefs tended to be more formalistic in their use of words. I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Garner, the, the, writing, the writing guy who says more plain language, take your long brief and trim it back by half and just get to it, use colloquialisms, you can use contractions, that kind of thing. I'm not just asking you about you, but what about other judges? Are, are they comfortable with these sorts of developments? Some are and some are not. Interesting, you mentioned Brian Garner. He's written some great books on legal writing, and I think he's, he does a great job. If you Google me, you'll find the interview that he did of me and put me on his website talking about legal writing and what works and what doesn't. And he's an advocate for 
not having any citations to cases in the body of your brief. We read things for content, and we want to learn whether it's a mystery we're reading for enjoyment or whether it's a, a legal brief that we're reading. And yet we write them and turn them into the court, and we write along, we have a sentence and this big long list of citations, and then we have another sentence and a big long list of citations. And it's difficult to read that the way we read everything else in life. And he said, just put end notes in there and put those citations at the end. You can always go back and look at them when you want to, but it reads so much better. And it was something that I thought sounded great. There were a few of us on the appellate court thought it was great. We mentioned to the Supreme Court, and they said, if you start doing that, we're going to send them back. We're not going to, we're not going to accept the, the opinions if you do them that way, because I thought about doing the opinions that way. They didn't, but the Supreme Court was against that idea. They liked the more formal approach. When was that, that the Supreme Court voiced that opinion? Ten years ago, probably. I started to say five, but I've been gone five. You know how that works. And I say they voiced that. That was a probably something that was voiced at a cocktail hour at a, at a judicial function. It wasn't some mandate from on high that they gave us. It was just, it came up in conversation and they, they did not seem to be very interested in it. So, And there are just a lot of judges at the appellate level, both at the Intermediate Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, who are very comfortable and very happy with the formal side of things. They, they like it that way and they want it to stay that way and they don't want to change. What is done when, when you're on the Court of Appeals? What did you do before the argument? I mean, you, you read the briefs and studied the briefs. Was there any discussion with the other judges on the panel about the case before argument? Sometimes. Before the oral argument, the cases that I would be writing on that particular docket, which would, you know, would always be about a third of the cases I'd be responsible for being the author of the opinion, the author of the opinion that's been chosen in advance is always more familiar with the case than the others. I would read the briefs, but I wouldn't dig into the legal file on a case that, that one of my fellow judges was writing unless and until something came up that I needed to do that on. You just don't have time to do it. But there would be times that I would come up with something that would, I would see something that was a red flag or I'd say, but this could be a problem, whatever. And then I might then say to, hey, Judge Richter, on that Smith case that's coming up, look at the second point because I think it's kind of squirrely. There's something weird going on there. What do you think about that? Because I want to give them a heads up that it may be worth taking a closer look. And so we do have those things from time to time. Not every docket has that kind of case in it, but once in a while it'll come up and we'll talk about those. How often does a good oral argument change the first impression of a judge after I assume you're not read the often briefs. there are times when oral argument can change a mind many lawyers that argue with the court of appeals get a question from one of the judges they're immediately on the defensive they, they think somebody's trying to either show something they're saying is wrong and don't realize that maybe what I'm doing is asking you this question that it's a softball I've just tossed you because I want you to help me convince my fellow judge that you're right and so I always tell lawyers, be careful. Don't, don't assume every question is a trap. It may be me trying to help you bring someone else along. So in those instances, it can help persuade someone perhaps or get some questions out there. The ability to answer questions and do it well is the part of oral argument where you can help your case a lot. I've often told lawyers that you can, you can lose a case on oral argument probably faster than you can win one. At the same time, you can't, you can't not argue a case because when you get that notice that says, if you don't argue it, you don't have to. If you say, well, I'm not going to argue it, you've just sent the first message in, this is not a big deal. And you just can't do that if the case, unless you're on a budget where you just can't afford, the, lawyer, the client can't afford to pay you to argue the case, you've got to argue the case. So, Judge, do you think being a trial judge was an advantage for you when you got on the uh, Court of Appeals? I can't even imagine doing the job without having the trial judge experience behind me first. 
we've got some wonderful appellate judges who are friends of mine and, and uh, who I have a lot of respect for and who are the great judges who were never a trial judge. I think they do a great job. We've got some academicians that make it onto the appellate bench that, that never were trial judges or trial lawyers, and they do a, a really nice job. But they're all coming to me or one of the other trial judges who was there saying, what happened here? What's, this, what's going on in this situation? Because if you lived it, you know. You're reading a transcript, and all of a sudden there's a break, and then something happens and went crazy, and you look at it and say, okay, wait a minute. Something going on because you've been there. And I think, it's, I think the job is, was much easier for me having seen the trial court and done that, had that experience, presided over multiple jury, you know, just being involved in those cases. You were mentioning the pace, and I'm, I'm thinking of what's required of a trial judge in terms of making decisions, making rulings, spur of the moment, no opportunity to research or read a case, and you compare that with the appellate right. judge where, you know, you've got the facts all laid out, you have the luxury of reading briefs right. on the issue in, in detail as we say we're we're at war and the trial judges are fighting the battle in the field the appellate judges ride through afterwards and shoot the wounded (laughs) (laughs) so the pace is different and so we can take our time and the the ability to reflect on some of those issues it's a luxury it may make one a little more likely to lean toward uh, discretion honoring the discretion of the trial judge no question about it much less likely to issue writs against trial judges who are there doing the best they can and calling the shots. And you're exactly right. There's no question about that. Sounds like triage at the trial court level. It is. It absolutely is. And I've had trial judges before make comments, and these are mainly trial judges who are a little bit older, but they'd make comments say, I've never been reversed before. I'd say, okay, would you mind getting in here and shouldering a little of this load? Because <laughs> if, you're not, if you've never been reversed, you're not trying enough cases. We need you to get to work because it's going to happen. Outsiders, non-lawyers who come into an appellate courtroom are often overwhelmed by the, by the splendor, the formal, the woodwork, huge bench. It's elevated higher and it's farther away typically. And wondering if you had any thoughts about whether the environment lends itself more to the process. Is there a function of making this court look more formal to getting the job done? I had a, a line that I've used over the decades, and, and that I still think applies, and it, and it goes along with that, with that question, and that is I think that sometimes for the litigants and the people who are involved in, in a case, the appearance of justice is often even more important than justice itself. And I think the formality and the, the look of that bench and the feel of that awesome presence you feel if you go in the United States Supreme Court and, and see what's going on there, I think it, it lends itself to making sure that the people were, whose cases we're handling know that it's an important matter that we've got and that, and that this is a formal place and this is a place where justice is going to be done. I, just, I think that's important. I think that separation and that being more elevated kind of goes along with the whole anonymous bench. You know, it shouldn't matter who the individual judge is that's going to make the decision. It should be the same outcome. I think that separation helps with that too. But I think the formality has a place. Judge, uh, what advice can you give a young attorney preparing for their first appellate argument? Well, first of all, if, if you've got a situation, and it almost always is, that you've got a case or two that's bad for you, take it on immediately. Do not wait for someone to ask you about it. Do not act like you're avoiding it. You need to get that case distinguished right off the bat and, and acknowledge that it's bad for you, but say why you can distinguish it or what's going on. I think I also would tell them that 
if you think you need to spend 10 hours getting ready for the argument and reviewing the record and the briefs, then you probably should spend 20. Because as much as preparation is everything in almost every asset or facet of the legal profession, at the Court of Appeals in particular, where suddenly in the middle of your oral argument, you're going to start getting questions from the, the bench. If you're not prepared, it's going to be an embarrassing time. And I think it's a stress reliever for you, too, to, to get prepared. So that would be the first thing that I would, I would say. But I also would say, get up there and say, you know, it's an honor to be here today. This is my first argument ever. I'm looking forward to answering any questions that you've got and make sure you're responsive to what they're doing. I also tell them, look, I know you, you think the, your, your closing argument at the, on your last page of your notes is, is the most important part of that, and you've got to get to it. But if they try to take you down a different road asking questions, go there. Do not think that your script is something you've got to be married to. You've got to go where they want to take you and answer those questions because to, to avoid that or try to get away from it is going to be a bad outcome for you. I'm wondering how much this weighs on a judge when you're, you're sitting there in the quiet of your office knowing that you're going to change not only the lives right before you in, in that case, but potentially other big issues going forward. Well, one of the ways that you deal with that pressure or burden or whatever you want to call it is by realizing at some point that, that there aren't that many cases where the decision you make is going to be a surprise to many people. The outcome may be bad. Someone may lose a fortune. Someone may have lost their life. Someone may be compensated. Someone may not. But the judge is not the one that caused that to happen, first of all. And the number of cases where the moment comes you put your, your pen to paper where you're thinking, man, love it. This, this is really a big deal. That goes away. I think there are a lot of judges that take it home with them some. I lecture on that. I do a lot of ethics presentation for judges still to this day. And I, I spend a lot of time talking about the difference between your life and your career. And if your career is, is morphing over into your life and you're taking your work home, cut it out because one of them is way more important than the other. But it can happen and it's easy. And, and I think most every judge has a moment where things start weighing on them. But when you get to the point that you can say, okay, I'm just doing my job. I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm going to call it like I see it. I, I think th that you, you get past that and, and that doesn't weigh on you the way it might seem. Now, there's some big cases that come down that, that are going to happen, but those are, are rare. Maybe two or three in my 15 years, really, that got, ever got me to a point where I'm like, wow, am I getting ready to do this? So that's not very many when you, when you consider the, the volume of cases that I would have been involved in. You knew I wasn't going to let you out of here until I asked you about the points on appeal rule. Missouri uh, apparently is the only jurisdiction, state and federal, that, where the rules tell you how to state your issue on appeal. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people on both sides of the issue, but what, what are your thoughts on that? We're the only state that has a rule that talks about points relied on and what has to be in them and then, then follows it so rigidly that you can actually get your appeal dismissed for failure to follow the rule and takes it to that extreme. I agree with that. I think every state has some requirement that you frame your issues on appeal so that everyone knows what it is you're arguing about. I mean, because that's, that's the purpose of the rule. Now, somewhere along the line, Decades and decades ago, I, I have no idea when that was first implemented, but long before any of our times, when that rule was passed, I've got to believe they did it to make sure we were framing the issues and so forth. And then people started getting crazy about how rigid they want to be. I think that the appellate judges are much less rigid than they were some of the older judges when I first went on the court, um, that generation before. They would not hesitate to throw an appeal out if it was wrong. I just don't see that happening the way it used to. Somebody might fuss at you a little bit. You might get one really conservative judge who complains about it. But 
it's not likely that it's going to happen that way. And so I just don't see that. I mean, maybe maybe there have been. Have you seen any recent cases where somebody's been dismissed for points relied on? Not recent, but yeah. over the last few decades, I think I've seen a few. I can tell you that I've talked to a number of appellate lawyers who are uh, discussing the points on appeal and pretty much agreement throughout the room that it's one of the most stressful points yep. of writing your brief because, you know, a lot of people have been hearing the stories about how somebody lost an appeal based right. upon the points. Yeah, and I still think it's it's good to spend time making sure you fine-tune those and make sure that they're correct. I think it's far less likely now that you're going to get tossed out because of that if, if you make an effort to try to follow the rules and, and you do, you know. But it, it is. It's, very, it's, it, it's, it's rigid. It's a little scary, and I do get that. But it's not going to change. <laughs> it's not going away. Starry decisis. We're supposed to follow precedent. But there's many decisions saying, well, where precedent becomes unfair, you don't follow it. How does that boil down in, in your mind? Do you have a, a heuristic or some way of approaching that concept, or did you when you were in Should the Constitution be strictly construed, or is it a living, breathing document? I think it's a very similar question. Stare decisis is something that's used a lot. If a lawyer's got a case that they think is right on point and helps them, then they talk about it way too much. I was never a big fan of the theory because I think that while we have to use precedent to help us map out where we're going to go for a number of reasons that I, that I can talk about, but I, I think that there are a lot of cases where they can be distinguished where the outcome is going to be different because it's not the same case. The more complicated the case is, the less likely that precedent is going to be right on point. The benefit of the idea of following the decision that, you know, the previous decision stands, it's, you know, you've got to follow that, the, the whole theory, is predictability. You, you know when you get to trial that there are certain things you can and cannot do because the appellate courts have spoken on that topic and told you what can come in and what can't, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you live by those rules, and it, it, there's a certain comfort in knowing that you should be affirmed if, in fact, that happens that way. But I think it's, it's, it's overused in those cases. I I saw a, uh, an article you had written for the Bar Journal on, on stare decisis, and, uh, and I read that. And I found it interesting when you talked about vertical versus horizontal stare decisis. I had, maybe that's a, a common way of saying it, but I, as far as I know, you coined that phrase. I had not seen that before. But the idea that is another appellate court going to be bound by what I say, in my opinion, in this appellate court, that's horizontal. Or as opposed to the trial judges following what's been handed down by the Court of Appeals, that's the vertical stare decisis. I think in that vertical setting, the concept is used and should be used every day because the trial judges, in an, or, in an effort to try to be affirmed, need to do what's been found to be okay in the past. I think at the appellate level, what the Court of Appeals judges in Kansas City, although they're dear friends of mine, what they say on an issue doesn't mean anything to me. Now, I like to look at it for guidance. I like to see what they say. But if I don't agree, then we'll, then we'll let the Supreme Court decide which the district is correct. If you had to invent the appellate courts right now, and there's nothing there, but you're going to invent the way it's, it's handling, is there, is there something that you would, have liked to, you would like to put into the system that might make it flow better or easier, or, or is it as good as it's going to get uh, as far as you can tell? Am I, am I the king of the You're the, you're the emperor, court? right. I'm the emperor. The intermediate appellate court shouldn't have to hear every appeal just because somebody files one. The intermediate appellate court should be able to look at it as the Supreme Court does and say, no, no, yes, no. Because if they did, 
we'd be able to handle the cases that should be on appeal and should be decided much more quickly and get to the issues that are important uh, much more quickly and efficiently. There are those who would say that that means that people aren't getting their appeals heard, but we trust the Supreme Court to do it. I'm not sure where the, where the distinction is in that regard. No, maybe everybody should have a right to appeal to someone. Okay, that's fine. I think that one of the things the appellate courts do that they shouldn't do, and some places do it and some don't, the Eastern District here in St. Louis, we would give any lawyer that asks for oral argument gets oral argument on every case. I think the court should decide which cases merit oral argument and which ones do not. And you won't have so many arguments on cases that just don't need to have argument. And, and that streamlines the process. When we went to the electronic filing of briefs and everything was being done electronically, it made a big difference in the way we handle the cases. But even that, which everyone knew had to happen at some point, you would have thought we had told all the judges at the Court of Appeals that they had to go build a new courthouse or something. <laughs> I mean, it was just absolutely an undertaking. that you, We're all fuddy-duddies, you know. We're t- no matter what we're doing, we, we, we like it the way it is. I like, my, I like my paper. I like to read it. And part of it is, is because as you're reading a brief and then you want to look at the legal file and then you want to look at the transcript, we all ended up with two monitors on our desk so you could have two documents open at the same time. What did they say three pages ago? I mean, sometimes it's just easier to read it if it's page by page rather than having to look through it electronically. But some of those things help. Judge, I couldn't agree with you more on the making it discretionary on the appeal. When, you know, when, we, when we do get a verdict, I think most often it's, it's uh, you know, an appeal is filed for leverage. Mm-hmm. They want to leverage and talk to you about resolving it. And the other thing, too, is if it's an unexpected result, maybe a verdict a lot larger than the defense anticipated or what the lawyers told their client, they need to have some justification. Somebody made the wrong call. Somebody didn't, They didn't see it coming. And so it was the trial judge that did this or the trial judge that right. did that. And I, I, I see that all the time. I, I, don't, I mean, I've never had a verdict of, of any kind, of a significant verdict where after the verdict they said, well, we're going to go ahead and and pay you the verdict. Right. Doesn't it's happen. always appealed. It's a guarantee. Well, you know, in the that previous session guaranteed. we did when we did, talked about mediations, anytime we're talking about resolving the case now so that the injured person or the, the business parties can have their money now, the other side of that coin is, or you can wait and have a trial a year from now, and then you're going to have an appeal. You, you just know that's going to happen. It's yes. going to delay the process even longer. And so that's factored in in every case. There's not any discussion about would there be an appeal or not. If the result is bad, there's going to be an appeal, and it's going to it's going to take some time. Yeah, and that's what I tell the clients that this trial, if you are successful, will not be the end of this process. That's right. And then if you lose on appeal, you may have to go back and have another trial. And I've told those things to to parties regularly, and you know they don't want that. And it takes too long. Here's an item on my wish list: that briefs will be filed in the future in a big PDF that includes the uh, record on appeal. And so when you're reading the brief, you'll see a hyperlink to the section of the transcript where you just you click it, and now you're looking at the transcript. Escape, you're back in the brief. Hit it again, you're looking at the case I cited. Uh, escape, you're back into the brief. Does that sound interesting? Perfect. We talk about it. We talked about ways to do it. We talked about trying to do the briefs and hyperlinks, try to do the opinions in that way too, and have a problem with West when we published the opinions on how on, on them letting us have any proprietary ability to hyperlink to their cases from the briefs. Mm-hmm. So a, uh, if you don't have a Westlaw account, you know, it's, it's, it's all about money, gentlemen. And so uh, depending on who's, who's running the different programs, but I think it would be a wonderful way to do it and it would, and it would make it much more efficient. So 
I think your dream world would be a good place. Well, I really appreciate you coming out again for uh, this session on appellate law. It's been enjoyable. Judge, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys. I really enjoyed being with you. So this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out, and uh, we'll be back next time. This is Eric Feith. John Simon. See you next time. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.